Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, January 11th. Week is really wrapping up, but the hits just keep on coming. We're uh, expecting prosecutors to make their final arguments in New York today. Now, remember, Trump and his businesses, they've already been found in this civil case guilty of fraud. This isn't, uh, is he going to be found guilty or not? This is uh, exactly how hard is the hammer going to come down? You know, um, prosecutors are asking basically that the um, Trump family, because it's his two kids, his two boys anyway, that the Trump family ability to do any kind of business in New York be either ended permanently or at least ended for the next five years. There are also potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in fines that he could be facing. Donald Trump got up today uh, to make a, a statement. Apparently, Judge Arthur Ingeron cut him off uh, because I know that you're going to find this shocking. He wasn't on point. He was um, making one of his grievance speeches. And the judge was like, you know, you're here to talk about the case. You can't talk about the case. Then just basically sit down and shut up. So Donald Trump went outside the courtroom and held an impromptu press conference. Uh, let's see, what are the highlights? This, uh, I believe we heard witch hunt again. This whole thing's a witch hunt. Um, the whole thing is this, um, even though this is a state proceeding, everything is Joe Biden's fault. Joe Biden has just weaponized everyone against him. This is just simply one politician going after another. It's Joe Biden. The reason he's facing all these indictments, it's because of Joe Biden. Yeah. And here's the th- here was the part I enjoyed most of all. This whole argument he wants the Supreme Court to decide about presidential immunity. Guys, he's not doing it just for himself. He's doing it for every president who will follow him. He's even doing this for Joe Biden. Not that Joe Biden is worthy of this kind of help. He's doing this for every president who will be elected after him. Because, you know, presidents, if they feel that um, they could be uh, charged with things what presidents won't do anything they won't be they won't be able to do anything they won't be able to make any decisions they won't be able to take any action because they'll all be afraid that um that they can be brought before the court system for it because again this is the guy who has this sort of mob mentality Donald Trump wants people to believe, and I think this is one of the core beliefs of his hardcore followers. He wants people to believe that he is not behaving in a way that is outrageous because everybody acts like this. Come on. 
everybody does this. And who, you know, whoever follows Biden in office, they're going to weaponize the DOJ and go after Biden for everything he's done. And if if this immunity argument doesn't hold sway, um, then the presidency just will be a powerless position. He's not doing this for himself. He's doing it for history. He's doing it for the country. He's doing it for the greater good. (sighs) Yeah. Because, you know, that's how he rolls. How many times during his presidency did we say to ourselves, oh, he's tough, but this is for the greater good. Kids in cages, greater good. Muslim ban, greater good. Friend of Putin, yeah, that's definitely something that's good for our country. Oh, by the way, the judge in the case, you may have heard this at the top of the hour. AP mentioned it, I think, in one sentence had a swatting incident. This is something that especially people who anger the Trump folks have happened to them. If they're high enough profile, if they anger the right people. Rick Wilson, you know, the guy who's behind um, the Lincoln Project and has been a thorn in um, Donald Trump's side, he posted just within the last week about a swatting incident. And what that means was that at 3 a.m., Mr. Wilson, because he told us about it step by step, heard loud banging on his front door, went downstairs in his boxers and T-shirt, 3 a.m., woke him up from a sleep to find that law enforcement was at his front door and that there were, I think, six or seven tactical cars There were SWAT teams, full body armor, on his front yard. He immediately understood what was going on. He said that, you know, he does, because of all the threats against him and his family, he does have a license to concealed carry. But he said, I was smart enough not to walk to my front door with a weapon, which is what he thinks the person who called... Oh, there was a person who called 911 and said that there are, there was either a dead body in his house or he had committed murder. There was some there was murder. There was there was death. The they were told there was death and murder in Rick Wilson's house in the middle of the night. And he said he did not carry a weapon to the front door. He opened the front door with his hand and then put his hands up, hands raised walked out again in his boxers and a T-shirt, 3 a.m., hands in the air, and very calmly spoke to the law enforcement officer there, telling me, you know what, you feel like you got to go look in the house, go look in the house, but there is no dead body, you have been used. And that's what happened to Judge Angeron. SWAT teams showed up at his house. You know, people who do this, they're actually, and again, I know this from reading about Rick Wilson talking about it, it's really hard to catch them because they use burner phones. They use burner phones that can't be traced. 
So there is no way until we figure out what to do about that. There's no way to figure out where these calls came from, though. I would imagine law enforcement is doing their best to try to figure it out. Um, so the chances of somebody being arrested for the swatting of Rick Wilson or somebody being arrested for the swatting of Judge Engeron, <sighs> slim and none and slim left town. But it is becoming a more common tactic when somebody really enrages Donald Trump's hardcore supporters. I've talked to a number of people, you know, uh, when, you know, when various anniversaries came around and people were worried there would be a second wave of violence. And after the January 6th indictments, uh, there has been very little violent protest about anything to do with Trump. But every expert I've talked to said just because there wasn't rioting in the streets doesn't mean there's no danger from these people. Because you got, let's say you got 200 diehard, eat, breathe, live Donald Trump supporters. They've seen what happened to the people who were at the Capitol. They're smart enough now to know that maybe there are some protests. Remember when Donald Trump first went to New York the first time he was going to be in court and he was like, oh, I want my followers to be there. And I think the CNN reported there were like two or three people who showed up. They're smart enough now to know when there is a danger of public violence or a danger of getting arrested. But the experts all tell me that doesn't mean there's no danger to people like Rick Wilson and people like Judge Engeron and their families, their their spouses, their kids, because it only takes one. Remember Pizzagate? Remember when um, QAnon folks were claiming that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor? I know. I know. Most of us looked at that and rolled our eyes. But one guy got a bunch of guns and went to the pizza parlor because he thought he was going to be rescuing children who were being trafficked by Democrats in a ring led by Hillary Clinton. Because we have such an easy availability of guns, guns that shoot military-grade weapons, military-grade ammunition, It only takes one unbalanced QAnon, you know, I'm going to show my love for Donald Trump, I'm going to get a burner phone, and I'm going to send a SWAT team to Judge Engeron's house. So the danger hasn't passed. The danger of large-scale Violence in the streets, the bloody civil war Donald Trump has called for. The danger of that may be less, significantly less. But the danger to anybody who publicly and repeatedly stands up against Trump. 
that danger is going to continue. And Rick Wilson said in his post, he was like, this is what happened. This is how it happened. This is how I reacted. You know, within a few minutes, you know, uh, law enforcement was like apologizing to me. And they understood that they had been used. And maybe next time they get a call like this, they'll be a little bit more skeptical. But he said, if I'd have walked to the front door with a gun that I was legally allowed to own and carry, there's at least a possibility that I would have been shot dead. And he thinks that's what they were hoping would happen. And yet you hear this. Oh, by the way, this happened, that happened. Oh, yeah, there was a swatting incident at Judge Angeron's house. This happened, that happened. Glossing over it almost like it was nothing. I assure you, for Judge Angeron and any family members who may have been in that house, it was traumatic. It was terrifying. So the danger is not over. We will see whether or not, I don't know how, how long Judge Angeron will consider once, once all the closing arguments are over, how long he will take under advisement exactly what his ruling is going to be and what kind of penalties he is going to levy. But that's coming. And Donald Trump, who apparently was not allowed, I know this is shocking, he wasn't allowed to make a political speech in the courtroom, so he went outside to do it for the cameras. And just know, just know he has our best interest at heart. He's, he's looking out for future presidents. How will anybody have the courage to take any action if they know that they might be you know, pursued by a weaponized DOJ. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. We're going to come back with more after this. Mind over matters. Dr. Amy Harris. Nuan, as you know, this show is about challenging you to think differently, to make different choices in your life, to take action, to create positive outcomes in your life. So I want to challenge you to look at your life holistically. Where am I satisfied? What areas uh, need attention? And then go to work, take an action, what you need to do. Mind over matters with Dr. Amy Harris Nuan. Sundays at 10 a.m. on WCPT 820. Hey, Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's progressive talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, I suppose we have to mention the Republican presidential primary debate last night, which it may have been Republican, but it wasn't a presidential primary debate. These people aren't even going to be vice presidents. Donald Trump isn't going to pick Ron DeSantis. Ronald, Donald Trump isn't going to pick Nikki Haley. <sighs> I think Nikki Haley is uh, doing her best to position herself for 2028. I Oh, oh there was some news. <gasps> Did you hear what Nikki Haley said? She said Joe Biden actually won the election. Oh. Oh, let's see. Let's write this date down. Thursday, January 11th, 2024. 
Nikki Haley finally goes on the record as saying that Donald Trump lost the last election and Joe Biden won. Oh, my God. What a stateswoman. Here's the thing. She now realizes that it doesn't matter how well she does in Iowa or New Hampshire. Unless Donald Trump has a massive stroke, she's not going anywhere in 2024. He's already said that he thinks that um, even Mike Pence wasn't loyal enough to him. Mike Pence, the lapdog toady. Mike Pence, the man who wouldn't say poop if he had a mouthful. He had too much backbone for Donald Trump. So I think Nikki Haley finally feels. A, what are we, 298 days away from the election? The odds that Donald Trump is going to keel over are becoming vanishingly small. The odds that she is going to somehow miraculously move ahead of him, they're like negative. It's like negative 10% that that's going to happen. So I think she's thinking, well, you know, how do I, uh, what do I do? How do I put a silver lining on this? So I think from this point on, we're going to see what Nikki Haley thinks will be the best statements and actions that in 2028 she can point back to. I think last night was an example. When she runs for president in 2028, she's going to say, I, you know, I was one of the few Republicans because I think she thinks that by 2028, maybe cooler heads will prevail. I mean, let's face it. I mean, if Donald Trump does get the nomination and does lose again to Biden or whomever, he's not going to be. I don't think he's going to be relevant four years from now. I really don't. And I think she is now realizing that 2024 is not going to be her year. She's never going to be his vice president. She's never going to surpass his popularity. She's not going to get the nomination. I don't care how much Koch family money is behind her. And it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if some of this advice were coming from the Koch network. um, That, you know what, you got to... Think of from this moment on, think of what you want to say and do that will put your candidacy in a good light in 2028. That's the Nikki Haley we're going to see. Um, I don't know if she will, how much she will break from Trump. But she's just laying the groundwork. She's laying the groundwork for her next run for office. That's 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 it. So the things that you hear her saying now, because she's a very um, go with the wind, blow with the wind sort of human being. She seems to have no core convictions or beliefs, which probably stands her in good stead with this party. But I, I think you're going to see her less trying to walk that knife's edge of not alienating the Trump voters and yet appealing to the people who are disillusioned with Trump. I think she is going to perhaps give up on the hardcore Trump voter and move over into this other territory, uh, the kind of people that the Koch 
network wants to see in office. DeSantis, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, sticking around. I really don't. Nobody likes him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to give him any money. I guess, you know, he's term limited out as governor. He probably figures, well, I got nothing else to do right now. (laughs) I might as well stay on the campaign trail. Though there are a lot of people that think um, in the very near future, very near future, Ron DeSantis is going to drop out like Chris Christie. Chris Christie said he wasn't going to drop out because somebody needed to tell the truth. But you notice he didn't make the debate stage, which means there are certain qualifications. You've got to have so many donors in so many different states. You have to have uh, donations that total a certain amount of money. And uh, Chris Christie didn't, didn't do it. And as much as he likes holding Trump's feet to the fire, I doubt that he is going to be dipping into his own piggy bank to continue to make that happen. By the way, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there was... Um, person who posted on um, on X on Twitter who said that Christie be was caught you know he, he made his big speech the other day how he's fought the good fight but he's gonna end his presidential campaign <laughs> um, apparently before he went out in front of the audience he was caught on a hot mic and this particular reporter transcribed it. He supposedly said, we know we're right, but they don't want to hear it. And when somebody was asking him about Nikki Haley, he said, she's going to get smoked. You and I both know this. She's not up to this. He also told this person that Ron DeSantis called him and Ron DeSantis was petrified. So. Um, at that point, either somebody figured out there was a hot mic or he uh, just went quiet after that. I mean, I don't think any of that's shocking. We know people are much more blunt behind the scenes. And frankly, Nikki Haley is going to be half her lunch handed to her. And again, the only thing that would pull her campaign out in this year would be Donald Trump. Not just any medical problem, but it would have to be an incapacitating medical problem to pull him out of the race. And frankly, if something like that happens really close to Election Day, my guess is his people would just try to hide it. So, yeah. Anyway, we are going to be talking about all kinds of things today. There's lots going on, and we have just barely scratched the surface. So um, we are going to be taking a break, and we are going to be getting on with it. Oh, by the way, uh, one thing I want to mention, if you are um, if you're handy and uh, near your phone, this coming Monday, this coming Monday, January 15th, We're going to do another one of those Ask an Attorney segments. At the end of our program on Monday, we're going to, Tony Moray has graciously agreed to give us 30 minutes of uh, free legal advice. 
So I'm going to be, I'm creating a Word document, and if you have a question for Tony Murray, now, this is a guy who knows about estates, he knows about wills, he knows about inheritances, and all kinds of good stuff like that. If you have a question for him, text it to me, and I'm going to create a document and start saving all of those questions, because I know sometimes it seems like these segments just pop up, and, you know, by the time you can figure out what you want to ask, the segment's over. So plan ahead, folks. 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. If there is a legal question you'd like Tony to tackle this coming Monday at 4.30, text it to me, and I will save it and ask it of him on Monday. We'll be back right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am happy to welcome back Laura Rodriguez, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. We have lots to talk about about our government right now and its affairs. Laura, thanks for being here. Hey, Joan, it's really great to be back, and you picked an excellent day to talk to me because I just got back from Capitol Hill, and boy, are things wacky over there right now. Tell me everything. (laughs) Well, uh, you may have heard over the weekend that uh, Speaker Johnson and Schumer had come up with a top-line deal for the budget. Keep the government open. Um, As your audience may know, we are coming up on two deadlines for government funding. It's usually one, but they decided to make it a little more fun this time um, and split our appropriations bills. And so there are four bills that were going to be expiring on January 19th, so a week from tomorrow. And then the rest of uh, the appropriations for the government uh, would expire on February 2nd. So there's been a mad dash since the year began to try and get this top-line number. Mind you, they already had a top-line number. It was one that McCarthy and Biden had already negotiated and Republicans in the House voted for. But they wanted to go back and and renegotiate. So with a new speaker, Schumer said, "Let's, let's make a deal. They came back with a deal over the weekend. It's not perfect, but it's fair. It keeps a lot of what we were glad that was still in in the um, in the bill that that the deal that was made with McCarthy and Biden. So the top lines were very similar. Non-defense spending didn't get cut by a huge amount, and so we said, well, you know, we'll take it. Right? <clears throat> then today came, <laughs> and uh, the hard right, Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates and others really unhappy that uh, Johnson negotiated this deal with Schumer. They thought that he didn't get enough concessions from uh, from the Democrats and seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding about the fact that they only control the House and are now saying that they are pushing Johnson to re-renegotiate, um, which is not a thing, but um, that is what they are pushing for now. They want him to 
do yet another negotiation. Like the, the deals have already been made, guys. You missed the boat. And um, they're very angry about this, and they're already talking about vacating the chair again no. and uh, voting to out Really? Them. Oh, yes. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, specifically has been you know, interviewed multiple times where she has said that, you know, that he keeps getting, and I quote, rolled by Democrats. But again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of A, what negotiating means, and B, that they are only in charge of one chamber. Uh, And so there's just these expectations that don't make any sense uh, from the House Republicans. And uh, they're... They're just being unreasonable, as they like to do. Wow. What do you think the odds are? I mean, did you, you know, do you do you think there will really be another Matt Gates? let's vacate the chair moment? It is looking very likely. <gasps> this is... Um, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I really thought, honestly, I, I, I really thought we had put this insanity behind us. I, I really did. Um, well, I just find I mean, it jaw dropping. <laughs> it's so hard to predict, John. I'll be honest. Like, I, I don't want to say it's definitely going to happen or it's definitely not going to happen. It's, it's, it's very, very this is a very unpredictable caucus. But it's very strange. Um, it would be very strange if there wasn't. I'll be honest. If, if there were, if they were to apply the same reason they ousted McCarthy, then this is exactly it. Yeah, it's deja vu all over again. Right. And so if they're going to stick to those principles, then it wouldn't be surprising to see another motion to vacate. Um, But it really is just a demonstration of the utter chaos that this caucus brings, the lack of ability to govern. And I know you and I spoke about this the last Mm -hmm. time, but it cannot be overstated. This is the House of Representatives. And they can't, yesterday, they couldn't get a simple rule passed on one of their easy bills because the right, uh, the right flank decided to protest the budget bill, which they were not voting on, uh, by tanking the, the rule and basically shutting everything down. And so nothing was going to pass. This is what, it's like children throwing tantrums. And so the House did nothing yesterday. They reopened today and uh, decided to let it pass. But time is ticking, and the government is going to partially shut down next Friday if they don't get it together. So it's it's serious. Is the vote business. scheduled? Is it? Is anybody saying, "Hey guys, you know, I don't know, I'm free Monday. Are you free Monday?" <laughs> so the question is whether or not Speaker Johnson goes along with another short term continuing resolution, which he swore up and down in November that he was not going to do. He's already starting to soften on that because the realities on the ground here are that there is no way for them to get, even though they have a top line number, and let's say he doesn't renegotiate and they stick to those top line numbers, those those numbers are now with the appropriators, right, in both chambers. They haven't come up with how much to fund each account. There are 12 accounts, right? There, It's very wonky, and I won't get too much into it, but there's a big number, but they haven't figured out the smaller subset, right, of what, what they're going to fund and how they're going to fund it. That's going to take some time. They then have to write those bills. 
Um, and considering how Congress moves uh, at the pace that they move, it's just it, that's going to take some time. So they, they won't make it before next Friday. And, and everyone is well aware of that. So the question is, does Mike Johnson give in to his right flank and <clears throat> power through and the government shuts down? Or does he <clears throat> move ahead with a short-term containing resolution, which uh, Leader Schumer has already uh, filed a, a, a shell bill? And this is all getting incredibly wonky, but the Senate basically is moving a bill that they can insert a continuing resolution uh, into quickly. And he, they filed that today because um, they're getting ready to, to do this short-term CR. They have to come up with when they would want it to go to, but it would probably look looks like sometime in March due to different um, House and Senate schedules, right? Mm-hmm. So it all really comes down to where is Johnson going to fall on this? And quite frankly, uh, very in keeping with what you and I spoke about last time, Johnson's leadership style is not leading. He is, he seems to be paralyzed. I mean, he, to be fair, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place here, but he also just, we have not seen those leadership skills kick in. And I think his own caucus is really starting to see that and it's coming through and they smell blood in the water and, and it's not good for anyone because if he can't make a decision, it all falls apart. Yeah. You know, I think I heard something from Mitch McConnell, and I wonder now if he wasn't trying to give Mike Johnson some cover because he said recently um, that he thought that they would have to fund another uh-huh. short term spending bill because, you know, and I'm, I'm desperately trying not to do my Mitch McConnell impression, which <laughs> I think is pretty good. But I don't know if anybody else agrees anyway. <laughs> He said um, that he didn't think Mike Johnson understood how much time it took, even the simplest things, to get through the Senate. And he said even the simplest things take at least a week. So he was mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, Mike Johnson better do another stopgap bill because there's simply no way, there's no way this budget is is going to get passed before there's at least a partial government shutdown. Do you think he was doing that to send a message or give Mike Johnson cover or what? Yes, both. Uh, and, and and he was exactly right. And, um, you know, Mitch McConnell has his own uh, reasons for this. Um, but at, at the end of the day, he, he knows that if a shutdown were to happen, it's going to make his party look bad. Um, and so I think he is, yes, trying to send the message, but also... You know, give cover to Johnson. The problem there is that the right flank does not love Mitch McConnell. Uh, The right flank at the House does not care what Mitch McConnell has to say. He's right. He's factually correct. But I, I don't know. I don't know that it's going to be effective for the audience that needs to hear it. You know, the real irony of all this is that if. Mike Johnson was able to get everything that the right flank wanted into a spending bill for them. They still wouldn't vote for it. <laughs> this this, um, this uh, group of folks 
is so anti-government and so anti-governing. Um, it's really they, they they don't vote for any government funding bills. So trying to make them happy on this is is kind of a silly exercise to begin with. This is all just an exercise to keep his job right as as speaker because that's 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 his only danger right now. He could pass a continuing result a short term continuing resolution with Democratic support easily tomorrow. But if he does that with, with a majority Democratic support, he gets ousted, or at least that's a very high probability. And and the key word in that sentence is majority, because it, haven't we already established that there's no way this budget um, passes without some Democratic votes? Oh, yeah. There's... <laughs> What's the threshold? Democratic votes is too many. (laughs) (laughs) He now has only, I I believe, a two-seat majority um, in the House. It's it's barely a majority right now. Um, I think at this point, and I'm only half joking, Democrats have a chance of getting a couple of Republicans to move over to their side, and maybe they can just take over the chamber. Um, It's it's really, um, it's a circus down there. And it's, I've never seen anything quite like it. Now, <clears throat> when you say it's a circus, you've been observing these folks for a long time. T- tell me one example of, of one thing that leads you to think to yourself, my God, this is like a circus. <laughs> well, um, stepping away for a second from the budget debate, we can look at the theater that they put on yesterday at the Oversight Committee. Uh, the Oversight Committee did uh, put, put forward a hearing to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress because he did not show up for their behind-closed-doors interview. Hunter Biden, to be clear, said, I will come talk to the committee in public on camera. I will testify. I will answer all of your questions. They did not want to do that. So yesterday they are having a hearing to hold him in contempt of of not complying with the subpoena to show up for that private closed-door meeting. So Hunter Biden makes a surprise appearance at that hearing and basically, you know, offers himself up to answer questions, and nobody would take him up on it. And we had members of the Republican side go absolutely apoplectic that he was sitting there, quote-unquote, mocking them, when, in fact, what he was doing was offering himself up. He's here. He he wasn't hiding from anyone. He was there to answer questions. They would not do it in front of the public. Uh, And as one representative from Texas who has become a little bit of a a firebrand and and very much a social media star, Jasmine Crockett, she pointed out the reason they don't want to talk, people don't want to talk to you behind closed doors because you guys lie about it afterwards. <laughs> and when, Hunter Biden's lawyers you, said that, you know, that's, you know, absolutely. we want to do this testimony in public. We don't want it to be selectively leaked. We don't want things taken out of context. Mm-hmm. We don't want mm-hmm. his testimony misrepresented. They were quite exactly. clear about that. 100%. And so with him showing up, the, the absolute uh, meltdown of the Republicans was was seen in real time. 
Um, there was name calling. Uh, Nancy Mace calling for him to be arrested on the spot. I mean, it's oh, just, it's, she was out. It, it, you know what I thought? When I saw Nancy Mace getting hysterical, what I thought to myself was perhaps a little more cynical and devious. She realizes that Hunter Biden's appearance has completely changed the narrative and will be the news story of the day and that Republicans were going to be taking a back seat. And I think she got hysterical and started yelling and waving her arms to make sure that at least, if not the other Republicans, Nancy Mace was part of the news cycle yesterday. And you saw that picture and that yelling over and over again. So I guess she was successful. I think uh, you might be onto something there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and that's exactly right. He messed with their narrative, mm-hmm. and he messed with their goal, um, and and they just don't know what to do about it. But it's also because of the hypocrisy about behind it, right? So um, another excellent point made by Jared Moskowitz on the Democratic side, Congressman Mo- Moskowitz, uh, was very clear and said, "Listen, I will." happily vote to uh, hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress if you all vote to hold all the people that didn't show up for the January 6th subpoenas in contempt of Congress. And he started pulling out every subpoena for Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and Kevin McCarthy. All all these people ignored, um, among others, right? Andy Biggs, and and there's a, a ton of them. None of them showed up after being subpoenaed for their interviews uh, in that investigation. And there was no contempt of Congress uh, brought brought forth. And it's just, it's, the hypocrisy is real. Yeah. What, to, uh, you know, I've been, I've been reading about this. If they do vote that Hunter Biden is in contempt of Congress, um, if that is allowed to stand, does what what if anything does that mean for I mean he's not a member of Congress so it's not like there's a black yeah. mark in his permanent record I mean <laughs> you know what what does that mean for Hunter Biden it means very little to be honest um I, I I wish it meant more not because I want him to have issues but because it should mean more to be held in contempt of Congress uh but the fact of the matter is I guess technically you can be arrested if you show up on the Hill um, and you've been found guilty of contempt of Congress. But uh, going back to Eric Holder's time in the Obama administration, he was held in contempt of Congress and testified multiple times in front of committees after that. Um, it really just was not, it's, it's a bit toothless, to be honest. But it is it is symbolic, and um, yeah, there's there's not much to that, unfortunately. Well, I think that <clears throat> I think that whoever supposedly I heard that the White House hadn't been informed ahead of time that Hunter Biden was going to show up, which I think, frankly, is probably all to the good, because if they didn't know, then they can't be accused of being complicit or or plotting. But I've got to tell you, I think it is it was a stroke of genius, Um, this kind of. 
you know, fighting fire with fire. Uh, and, you know, I don't know who Hunter Biden's lawyer was in this particular case, but I hope the Democratic Party hires him uh, to give them advice on everything that is that is going on. Uh, right now, because I think that, I mean, it was it was brilliant. It it made the point in a way that was straightforward, easily understandable. Um, it was a very human thing to do because, you know, one of the things my political mm-hmm. pundits always tell me is, you know, Democrats are too much in their head. People don't want to talk about policy. They want to talk about, you know, what a loaf of bread costs. They want more down to earth. They want they don't necessarily want statistics for their head. They want a feeling in their heart kind of a, an argument. And um, kudos to him. Kudos to him and his team, especially, you know, I've got to tell you, Laura, if somebody in Congress had held up a poster of me naked, I don't think I would ever want to go to Washington, D.C. ever again. Just awful stuff. I mean... Besides Can you the imagine fact a Democrat that, pulling something like that? Oh, he, oh you know, like, oh, oh, you know, here's a, a shot of Lauren Boebert grabbing her dates, private parts mm-hmm. during Beetlejuice. Let's blow it up so that it's like poster sized. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's, this is what I mean by circus like behavior, right? This is unheard of in these chambers. Unheard mm-hmm. of. I mean, to your point about being human, they they treat. Hunter Biden as if he were subhuman, like he should be treated as a criminal. Um, and even criminals have rights. Uh, and, and being, you know, humiliated that way at a congressional hearing is beyond the pale. But going back to your point about the lawyer, I, I completely agree with you. And the fact that they are making sure that the White House is very much separate from this mm-hmm. is also very key. I, I completely agree with you. And it's from the beginning, the president has been clear and open and said, I am not getting involved. The Department of Justice is on its own, and I will not say a word about this. Um, so that's, I think it's it's been... It's been really good. It's unfortunate that most people conflate all politicians together. Uh, and I bet there's probably a few folks out there that don't believe that he hasn't done anything, you know, to, to tip the scales there. But um, the fact of the matter is that the president is is an honest man. And when he tells you he's not saying anything or doing anything uh, to tip the scales, he's not. Uh, he he is out of it. Yeah, I, I we'll, we'll see that. how that. Yeah, we'll see how it all plays out. I think at the end of the day, the ones who look pretty ridiculous are the Republican members here. You know, I'll, sort of along these lines, talking about President Biden, I think that it has been a very smart uh, pivot, if you will in his um, speeches, in his messaging, uh, to focus on how this coming election is a, it's a vote for or against democracy. I mean, you know, Bidenomics, great. Infrastructure, great. Uh, those messages mm-hmm. didn't seem to resonate. But I think, I think the White House has hit on what will be the important message of this campaign. What do you think? 
I couldn't agree more. I think that that pivot was probably always going to come. It's the big picture. None of this is possible. Bionomics is not possible, and inflation lowering is not possible if we don't have a country, if we don't have a democracy. Mm-hmm. It, so that's the big picture, and he's not wrong. Um, you hear, uh, let's talk about Chris Christie yesterday and his speech, his, 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 <laughs> his burn the bridge down behind <laughs> me speech. <laughs> Um, he is, he was just as clear. This is serious stuff. If this man gets into that white house again, this country's done at, as we know it. it. It will never be the same. It will not recuperate from a second Trump presidency. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that under that democracy umbrella, there's so many things to talk about. And one of the most salient issues, as you as you know, is um, women's reproductive health and abortion rights. Uh, these are things that are being they're being hammered in state after state after state. We're seeing the real awful nightmarish stories from places like Texas and Oklahoma and Florida. Um, These are real people and women are not taking this lying down. We've seen time and time again, when abortion is on the ballot, it wins. It wins in Kansas. It wins in Montana. It wins. Why? Because women are not going back. They're not going back in history. So it's that, that, piece of democracy, uh, you know, your bodily autonomy, your right to, to self, you know, preservation is, is real. And I think you're absolutely right. The president is hitting on that. And I think he's going to hit it as much as he can, as, as he should. Um, how many Republicans, and because you mentioned Chris Christie, it comes to mind. How many Republicans do you think will come out publicly for Joe Biden when it gets to the nitty gritty. Adam Kinzinger has already already said, I'm a Republican. I'm always going to be a Republican. I'm never not going to be a Republican. But I will tell you, in 2020, I voted for Joe Biden. And if it's Trump versus Joe Biden, I will be voting for Joe Biden again. Uh, if would you think we'll get a Liz Cheney or a Chris Christie coming out and saying, you know what? There's too much at stake, guys. I do think that group grows. I do. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that folks like Larry Hogan are toying with the third party, no label thing. And we'll, we'll have to see if that actually pans out. Um, because I feel like that's exactly the kind of Republican that would, you know, do that and, and kind of say, you know, in this one election, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because it's too important. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we have to see. I do think that that number grows. I think the more um, we see the trials, you know, all the stuff with the trials happening with Trump, I think that Trump has, like, hit his ceiling, you know. Um, I I heard this from another reporter the other day, and I think this is exactly right. Trump has a ceiling. Biden has a floor. So... There's definitely room for growth for Biden, where there's only room for Trump to lose more. 
Uh, I was reading uh, Jonathan Last wrote this week that same argument that, yeah, we know what it looks like right now, but I think Trump has peaked. He's not going to get any better than he is now. And he said, I think Joe Biden is definitely, definitely has room to grow and will grow. So that was what he was saying. He thinks Trump's got nowhere to go but down. Biden's got nowhere to go but up. Yeah. And I think, again, especially because this time around, we have issues like abortion um, that are top of mind. I think we get a lot of Republican women uh, saying, no, thanks. I, I don't need you telling me whether or not I can take birth control. I don't need you telling me you know, when and where to have children. That's not up to you. Yeah. Uh, Laura, so, next time I yeah. have you on, we're going to have to book an hour because our time is up, and <laughs> and I have more to I have more to say. I have more questions to ask you. So, uh, in the future, I'm going to ask if you could find a day and time where you can spend a little more time with us. It is always so much fun to talk with you. Likewise, Joan. Thank you so much. I'm happy to come on whenever and as long as you want. Yay! Uh, Laura Rodriguez is the vice president of government affairs at the Center for American Progress, and she has promised you heard it here to come on with me and spend an hour next time she's here. We are going to take a break for news and get on with the rest of our day after that. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. Not surprising, in January, a lot of new laws start taking effect. I was looking at an email list, and there are lots of them. Um, and I thought, you know, it might be nice if you heard from somebody who actually uh, knows a little bit more about this than me, maybe has a little more expertise in this area and can explain this a little bit better than I would be able to. So uh, very graciously right now, we are pleased to be joined by Gwen Daniels, who's an attorney and deputy director of Illinois Legal Aid Online. We are talking about new laws. Gwen, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay. First of all, um, Illinois Legal Aid Online. So are the, are the days over when you had these little storefront offices and people uh, came to see you there? Everything is now on the interwebs? <laughs> no, we still have those. Um, but for about 75 to 80% of the individuals who go to court in Illinois, they go without an attorney. And Illinois Legal Aid Online, we provide free um, legal information, court forms, um, step-by-step instructions on how to proceed for those individuals who simply don't have access to or can't afford a lawyer. I see, I see. Well, it's interesting because um, the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I was actually having a conversation just this morning with my son. Uh, My son works for a family-owned company here in Illinois. It gets a little bit of paid leave, but not a huge amount, and is possibly 
in the sadly relatively near future may be looking at a second surgery on his elbow, which he destroyed falling down a flight of stairs trying to take the dog out at 2 a.m. And I know that's too much information, Gwen, but I have to I have to give context here. Um, And I said to him, I said, oh, my gosh, it's a good thing that there's now this. paid leave um, act that has taken effect in the state of Illinois. And he looked at me and he said, well, but my company already offers paid leave. They just don't, you know, necessarily offer a lot of it. And he said, so he said, since he didn't think that his company would be covered, uh, is this just for companies who've never offered paid leave? Tell me, tell me how this works. Yeah, so the Paid Leave for All Workers Act, which took effect January 1st, requires that all employers, for the most part in the state of Illinois, provide a minimum of 40 hours of paid leave a year for all employees. Now, if his current employer already offers at least that or more, um, then this doesn't really impact them. Um, what, what it does do is make it it's possible for everybody, regardless of whether their employer had in the past offered paid time off, they now have um, at least 40 hours a year in paid time off. And it can be used for any reason. Um, But before this act, um, Chicago, for example, had a sick leave ordinance, um, but it was only able to be used for sick leave. This way, with the paid leave for all workers act, the employee doesn't need to specify why they are taking leave. So if my son needs to take care of me, he can use this leave uh, to come to my house and uh, and take care of his mother? And I know this is a really stupid thing to say, but in the interest of clarity, you're talking about um, a minimum of 40 hours paid leave a year. That's like for the average full-time worker, that's like five days, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um and it doesn't have to be paid out when the employee leaves, um, so long as it's not commingled with other forms of paid leave. Um, so, like, in a company that offers, you know, a, a week paid vacation or two weeks paid vacation, they're not fall undering. They're not offering paid leave under the Paid Leave for All Workers Act are not then exempt from paying out vacation time when somebody leaves um, as they are under current Illinois law. But if they don't, if they hadn't offered paid leave in the past, as long as they front load it, um, they are not required to pay it out to the employee leave. So when you say front load, that means, okay, this, this law took effect January 1st. So that means as of January 1st, everybody who's covered by this gets their five days. It's not like a one day from, you know, for January and February, one day for March and April, one day for June and July. That's correct. If the employer chooses to front load it, then that five days is automatically should have been automatically available January 1st. They don't have to front load it. They can continue the accrual process. Um, which is basically one day every two months. Um, but then they could be on the hook to have to pay it out should the person leave and hadn't, hadn't, hadn't used it. Oh, I see. I see. If, so if they, 
it, uh, under certain circumstances, if the if the employee is terminated, it would be something that they would have to pay them for. Uh, but if it's uh, set up a different way, then um, it's not something that they would have to pay them for, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. I don't know if my son is listening. Um, but I now have the information that I need uh, to talk to him about that. So, again, just to make sure I get this, if you work for a company that, say, already offers six days of paid leave a year, that company does not fall under this ordinance because they're already offering more than the ordinance mandates. They technically do fall under the ordinance. However, it's not going to have any practical impact. Mm-hmm. Should, you know, when something like this takes effect, Gwen, um, is there some sort of email that goes out to HR people around the state? And, you know, um, because this morning when he and I were having this talk, I almost said to him, why don't you call your HR department? And then I thought, well, how do I how can I even be sure there they know what the latest law is? How how does this information get out disseminated? Um, I'm not sure how the individual HR departments work. Um, there are plenty of HR-related listers um, and monitoring companies that will be aware of these things. We have a link on all of the content pages on our website that links to information about all of the re- relevant new laws uh, for anybody to read. Um, this particular act has been all over the news uh, lately, so hopefully... Companies are aware there are information on the Illinois website and on the city of Chicago websites um, explaining how the pay leave ordinances work as well. Well, before we go to the next break, let's keep talking about money a little bit. There's a new minimum minimum wage law. What is that? That's, um, it's not really a new law. It's just that the, the amount has gone up um, oh. starting January 1st in, in Illinois. It is now $14 an hour. Um, I believe at 15, it's a little more than that in Chicago. And for tipped workers, the hourly minimum wage went up from 780 to $840. So, like, if you're a, a waiter or a waitress, your base salary has to be within that second range. Um, no, you know, you're, if, it, yeah, if you're a waiter or a waitress, your salary has is now gone up to 840 as the minimum, um, and that's applied before tips. I see. I see. So they have, they have to they have to get at least eight eight forty, including tips per hour. Um, okay, now I, I'm I'm confused again. So for tipped workers, the hour hourly minimum wage will goes from seven eighty to eight forty. But let's say I yeah. work at the local I IHOP. And I regularly get $10 worth of tips every hour. So does that mean this hourly minimum doesn't affect me? I thought maybe this was talking about the base salary, because I know I used to work in a um, Chinese restaurant when I was uh, in college. And, you know, the argument was, well, your base salary is going to be 50 cents an hour because we expect you uh, to right. make X amount of money in tips. Right. And, and that's essentially what this is. The, the minimum direct wage, is, it would be $8.40. I see. And that would then get the, the individual with tips up to the, the minimum wage. 
And if somebody is in a situation right now, if somebody's working, let's say, as a tipped worker and they're listening to our conversation um, and they don't think that their bosses have boosted their minimum salary, do, Gwen, do they reach out to somebody like you or what do they do? Yeah, so they can come to our website and there's information on how to file a wage claim. Um, they can reach out to the state of Illinois Department of Labor. Okay. Those are good places to start. Um, we need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to Gwen Daniels, who's a de- deputy director of Illinois Legal Aid Online. There are, oh, there are a lot of new laws taking effect this January. She and I are going to walk through some more of them when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. The David Pacman Show. The Republican Party has become a party, how can I say this, that appeals to the lowest common denominator, panders to ignorance and fear, and rejects facts and science. The party has alienated many of these moderate, independent, educated voters who are increasingly voting for Democrats rather than Republicans. The David Pacman Show, weekday evenings at 10 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is a new year, and in the state of Illinois, that means we've got some new laws on the books. I'm joined by Gwen Daniels, who's an attorney and deputy director of Illinois Legal Aid Online, to wade through some of the new wages, or wages. I'm sorry, Gwen, I can't head out of the bank. I'm still looking at uh, paychecks here, but I do want to move on from that. Um, we knew that, um, you know, our Secretary of State, Alexei Giannoulis, was um, trying to do something to prevent book banning from taking root in Illinois. And uh, so House Bill 2789 is now on the books, which means that public libraries in the, the state of Illinois will now be unable to ban books if they want to continue uh, to receive state money. Is that about right? Yes, that's actually exactly right. If they want to continue to receive state money, they cannot ban, um, they can't ban books, and they are also permitted to create anti-book banning policies. Um, um, I think that, I think that's a wonderful law. Do you, you know, These are now laws, so they've been debated, they've been discussed, they've been voted on, they've been signed by the governor. But, of course, as you know, Gwen, from being an attorney, that doesn't mean that, you know, down the road somebody might not decide to challenge something like this in court. How often does something like that, you know, take place? Is that something that people should be concerned about? I mean, it, it certainly has happened in the past. We had in lawsuits filed um, last year when the Safety Act that, ban, that banned um, 
cash bail was passed, we had challenges to the automatic weapon ban. Um, it, it does happen. Um, Well, hopefully it won't happen when it comes to book banning, because it seems it seems to me and I'm maybe being a little too optimistic here. I think that in a lot of states, especially when conservative organizations tried to take over school boards in the last election cycle, almost all of those candidates, those moms for liberty, ultra right wing candidates were defeated. Um, very few of them made it through. So hope, hopefully we have seen the last of that. There was one law that I thought was really, it sounds kind of quirky, but I think I know what's behind it, Gwen, and that's decriminalizing rear view mirror air fresheners, which seems like a very oh. weird thing for the state legislature to take up to debate, let alone pass a bill because we want to make sure that those air fresheners don't get you sent to jail. Talk about that bill and what's behind it. Yeah, so it's not just air fresheners. Um, it applies to anything hanging from your rear view mirror, and that includes air fresheners, decorations, disability placards, um, which I see quite frequently when I'm driving around, um, rosaries, other religious items. Yeah, I, th- I think a part of this came up um, with the 2021 shooting of Dante Wright in Minnesota. He was a 20-year-old black man um, pulled over in part because of a it was a traffic stop, but he was part of pulled over in part because of something dangling from his rearview rear mirror. Um, the pulling over drivers because of something hanging from their rearview mirror disproportionately affects specific communities. It's It allows for racial profiling and other forms of discrimination. It's it's basically, you know, something what that law enforcement in in many places just uses as an excuse uh, to pull a car over. Yes. And um, that is now illegal in the state of Illinois. I didn't realize it went beyond air fresheners, but now that you mention it, that makes a lot of sense. Um, oh, you don't have an air freshener, but you've got that disability card. I'm sorry. You, we're going to pull you over. So, so yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen law enforcement use this to target people who they just think are suspicious. And sadly, a lot of that time, it's black and brown people who, who suffer from things like this. There was another uh, driving law, a don't zoom and drive. Um, was this were people zooming while they were driving, Gwen? Yes. Oh. Um, you know, we've had we've had laws on the books banning distracted driving for, for a while. Um, and those have included, you know, don't using not using your cell phone for elect- or other electronic communication devices like laptops or, you know, iPads. Um, you, we weren't allowed to, t- to text and drive or. talk on your phone with hands-free, this law goes a step further and says you can't use video conferencing applications like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, Google Meetings, even in hands-free mode. Oh, really? You, you can, now, you can use any of those things audio only, 
um, in hands-free mode. I see. It's not, it, but the video piece of it adds a an extra element of distraction. Um, imagine trying to drive on the highway while you're in a face-to-face meeting over Zoom with, you know, 20 people in your office. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can still Zoom audio only um, and hands-free. That's still legal, just no video. And I, I thought it was really interesting that they went on to to, to name some of these things by uh, by their trademark names, Zoom, Microsoft Team, WebEx, no Facebook, no Snapchat, no Instagram, no Twitter. Um, what if new social media comes out uh, in the next year that isn't named in this ordinance? Would it be covered, do you think? Yeah, the ordinance, it says social media in video conferencing, it doesn't specifically limit it to those specific platforms. Um but if if I say to to somebody you can't video conference on your phone um, while driving, that may be a little less understandable to them as me saying you can't zoom on your phone or you can't watch Facebook videos um, while you're driving. Mm-hmm. It, you- it's it's just a little bit more plain language for most yeah. individuals. I think this is going to be a good law for the foreseeable future. Um, but I wonder if uh, the state legislature at some point is going to have to change this if we get to the point where we really do have reliable, effective, self-driving cars. I know in one of the um, – this was years ago – in one of the earliest – earliest tests of Tesla's self-driving ability. I remember there was a guy who got into an accident and he died and he had a quote-unquote self-driving car and he was found to be watching a movie, um, which, you know, considering the fact that back then that certainly the program had to be um, buggy and, you know, not in a finished form, it seems like a like a bold choice. But I suppose that's the point of... These evolving laws, I mean, they they follow along the way we live our lives, don't they, Gwen? Yeah, I mean, you know, technology is always going to make these kind of laws um, in need of, of updating. Yeah. You know, 30 years ago, we didn't have cell phones. Um, 25 I, years ago, we didn't have Facebook. Um, I can't remember back before these things, Gwen. It just seems like they've always been a part of our lives. Uh, it's just staggering to me the the changes uh, that I've seen in in my lifetime. I remember I told my daughter once, you know, when I was a little girl, we didn't have computers, and she was just she was just gobsmacked by that. And she finally looked at me and she said, "Did you have TV?" And I was like, "Yes, I'm not that old. We had TV, um, but yeah." It is, uh, it is a brave new world, and I'm glad we're keeping up. Before we go to break, real quick, there's another one I want to touch on that kind of has a lot to do with our digital Internet world, and that's the uh, Digital Forgeries Act. And it has to do with digitally altered images and deepfakes. Talk to me about that. Yeah, um, it gives individuals a... A right of action against anyone who, without their consent, um, basically uses their their image, 
a fake image um, in order to harass, extort, threaten, um, or cause, you know, physical, emotional, reputational, or other forms of harm. Um, Because we've seen this. I've been reading more and more that this is a problem in high schools, that boys are especially... Primarily boys is what I've been reading about. They'll take uh, an image of a girl they go to high school with and somehow using um, computer technology, they they make nudes of these girls and then they share them. Yeah, they can, they can use, you know, a, a photo editing service or application on their phone and they can, you know, super her face over um, a nude photo and then circulated on social media, on text platforms. Um, and unfortunately, um, once that stuff is out on the internet or out in the wild, it's really, really hard to, to undo, to get that all back. Um, so this creates a, a right of action, a cause of action for the individual whose photo is placed on these images to go back and, and, and sue for damages. Good. Good. I mean, you know, it's one thing for stuff like this to happen to adults, but it is just so devastating when young people have to have to live through this kind of this kind of nonsense and to not have any legal or civil recourse here is just is just wrong. So I'm really glad that this is uh, something that the Illinois state legislature has uh, fixed. Um, Gwen and I are going to be taking a break. Uh, Gwen Daniels is the deputy director of Illinois Legal Aid Online. There's a bunch more new laws that we are going to be talking about that have taken place this January. They're on the books. You should know about them because... Um, They are um, full-fledged. They're not discussions. They're not debates. They're not bills. They are laws. We're going to be right back after this. Get social with WCPT 820 and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Gwen Daniels. She's a deputy director of Illinois Legal Aid Online. We are talking about some of the laws that are all the land here in the state of Illinois, having uh, gone into effect January 1st. Gwen, there's one that I... I guess I was a little surprised about um, that non-U.S. citizens, um, if you're as long as they're in the country and legally allowed to work, they can become city or county law enforcement officers. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, it's a little bit more than they have to be legally able to work, they also have to be able, legally able to carry firearms under federal law. Um, so it applies primarily to green card holders. Um, some refugees and asylees may also be able to work in law enforcement, you know, just as many of those same individuals serve in the United States military. Um, all of the other rules for becoming a police officer still apply. 
um, the app specifically mentions DACA recipients as being pot uh, potentially eligible to work as police officers. However, federal law continues to ban them from carrying firearms, and so without a change in that federal law, they'll likely remain ineligible. Um, but part of this, you know, for the last few years, police departments have seen increases in the number of retiring officers and more difficulty recruiting new officers. So this law really, it expands the pool of people who are eligible to become officers. And to be clear, it does not allow anyone who is in the country illegally to become a police officer, as those individuals are not eligible to own and carry firearms. So you have to be in this country legally. You do or do not have to have a green card? Well, there are very few individuals who are in this country legally um, who don't have a green card. Um, that's work authorization or legal permanent residency. There are some individuals who would qualify to have work authorization because they are refugees and, or asylum seekers. And how is somebody supposed to find out what you say you've, you have to follow the federal laws when it comes to who can and can't have a firearm? Um, where would one where would one research that? I mean, those kinds of rules available online somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the basic rule there is that you cannot you, you have to be in the country legally to carry a firearm. You can't. Um, you also have to be able to comply with state firearm laws. So certain individuals who may be in the country legally but have a felony record may not be able to become a police officer if they can't carry a, a weapon. I see. I see how that would work. Um, well, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the state, but certainly the city of Chicago seems to uh, be having a hard time filling the ranks. So maybe this um, would be would be a ha help to that. Um, I want to move on, though. Um, there was a law that was passed that provides protection for children, social media influencers. Talk to me about this. Yeah, um, the, the mommy bloggers law. Um, you see a number of social media influencers, um, folks, primarily parents um, who have a you know family YouTube channel, uh, a TikTok channel, sponsored posts on Instagram that feature their children. Um, under this law, which becomes effective actually July first, twenty twenty four. It requires that if those parents are, or others are receiving money, um, either through YouTube ads, TikTok ads, sponsorships, um, those kind of things, um, that if they're using the images of their children or of any child under the age of 16, and at least 30% of the videos made by them in a 30-day period includes that, uh, a minor or their likeness, their name, their, pho their photograph, um, it requires that they put a percentage of the money into trust for the child. Um, you know, children, especially young children, and this is, is similar to the digital forgery that they can't consent um, to have their likeness used on, on the Internet. They can't mm -hmm. go back you know, 10 years from now and make all that stuff that the, the, the parents or somebody else did when they were a child go away. So this is... A, essentially recognize that these children are, are, are essentially child workers in need of protection. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, this is going to sound weird, and I know she doesn't live in the state of Illinois, but let's let's look at Chrissy Teigen, John Legend's wife. I mean, she is all over social media. She's always including both John and her kids in her posts, and she posts uh, uh, seemingly every day. She's also using social media to sell some um, some mixes, um, some pancake mixes and other things. And she also has a line of robes and pajamas. Um, but, but a lot of the time the, her posts are just, you know, either here's, we're all dressed up fancy. We're going out or we're on this vacation and I'm here with my kids. We're here with my kids. Look at my kids. My kids are cute. Would that would this law apply if she lived in the state of Illinois? Would this law come into play there? So it would depend on whether the the videos that or images that include her children are making money, mm-hmm. and if at least thirty percent of those uh, of what she posts in a thirty day period included um, that child or children. I see. So it's not just if she's. An influencer and her, let's say her Instagram is getting sponsorships, then her actual social media is making her money as opposed to somebody like Chrissy who uses her social media to sell her, sell her products. There's a distinction and a difference there, right? Yeah. It, 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 in the case of, of, of Chrissy, um, she is primarily, she is a social media influencer. Her children are probably secondary to that. But yeah, she includes them in some of her posts, but the children themselves aren't so heavily featured that they themselves are, are considered, you know, child influencers. If we took some of the, um, you know, the older, some of the TLC reality shows that featured, you know, large Honey families. Honey Boo Boo? Yes. Um, so if that, was a, if that was an online social media thing instead of a television show, um, Honey Boo Boo would have been would be entitled um, to a percentage of the money that her mother may have earned on social media um, by using her image, her videos, her likeness um, on social media. I see. I see. So it's sort of like, you know, we used to hear, well, you're probably too young, but, you know, we used to hear about all these child stars who had been on these hit shows for years and years, and yet... Um, they would always be broke because their parents yep. had cashed all the checks and their parents had, you know, taken fancy vacations and bought big houses. And and when the child star became an adult, there was no money anymore. Yeah, and this is sort of an extension of that reflecting the it's no longer just the child star on television or in the movies. It's the, basically the child star on social media. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and, and this is a way to help protect them. There's one final law that I want to talk to you about because it kind of seems like maybe this is the kind of thing that might get challenged. It doesn't seem to be uh, supporting of successful businesses. Uh, and maybe I don't understand this. Maybe that's why I'm seeing it this way. Uh, utility providers can no longer terminate service for people who don't pay their bills, is that correct? That is not quite. That is not correct. Good. Um, Straighten me out here. Uh, yeah. So for 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 a long while, um, we have had 
protections in place for utility providers um, when it comes to terminating service in the wintertime for non-payment of bills. Um, the last thing you really want to happen when it's, you know, like minus two, like it's going to be next week, to have the utility company shut off your heat. Um, House Bill 1541 extends that a little bit to cover extreme heat. You know, as we've seen in recent years, the planet's getting hotter. We have more extreme weathers, and um, this law is intended to provide protection for those individuals who are at high risk of heat-related illness and death, older adults, young children, people with chronic medical conditions. Um, it ensures that the utility companies cannot terminate their service for non-payment if there is an excessive heat warning or if it's 95 degrees or above. Um, air conditioning, cooling systems are becoming as critical up here as your furnace, your gas heater, your fireplace are in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, as soon as that excessive heat warning is gone and it drops down to 89 degrees, or um, so it, yeah, it, the shutoff is actually lowered down to 90 degrees. As soon as it hits 89 degrees, the utility company can still shut your, you off. Uh, but there are a lot of things that an individual can do they could work with the utility provider to set up a payment plan, a repayment plan. Um, we have plenty of information on our website that will can guide somebody to doing that. Um, it, it just provides a little bit more of a safety net for those individuals who really are at high risk of being extremely sick or dying from in hot weather. You you mentioned that. Um Legal aid could help people in their efforts to set up a payment plan. Gwen, what else do you guys do? Well, so our our website provides legal information and resources for pretty much every civil legal problem imaginable. We have information on how to work with your utility providers, how to work with your your schools to get an, an individualized education plan if you have a, a child with um, special education needs. We can connect individuals to legal aid programs in the state. Um, in Chicago, that includes organizations like Legal Aid Chicago, um, Carpool Legal Aid. Um, we, we, we have a... We have a system that allows us to connect and, tri- and triage individuals to the right organization that may be able to actually provide legal representation, which is something that we don't do. And do you have um, a sliding scale of, of what you charge people? Well, so everything on our website is completely free and available to anybody on the Internet. Um, and all of the, now we connect individuals to legal aid organizations who have their own criteria for what types of cases they take, um, income limits because they have funders who often require um, income limits, um, special populations. Um, for some organizations, if you're a senior, they don't care what your income is, but if you're not a senior, they do. Um, some organizations that we work with do offer sliding scale services. Um, but Illinois Legal Aid Online, all of our stuff is completely free to anybody. 
Excellent. That's good to know. And what exactly is your web address? Give it out over online. IllinoisLegalAid.org. That's easy to remember, IllinoisLegalAid.org. Gwen, thank you so much for taking so much time with us to walk us through um, what we can uh, be looking forward to in the next year in the state of Illinois. I really appreciate you taking the time. Anytime. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back with more politics after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Um, Earlier today, when I was talking with Laura Rodriguez, one of the things that she mentioned that we spent a little bit of time on was this idea that Joe Biden's campaign, um, White House spokespeople, they seem to be pivoting in their messaging. You know, um, what did I say? I think it's 298 days uh, till the next election. (sighs) So... Um, they are going to focus this campaign in a different way, in a way that I think is going to be much more effective. And that is framing this for what it is. This is going to be us voting on not a particular person, but on the idea of whether or not we believe in democracy. We are going to continue um, having a democratic form of government or whether we are going to submit ourselves to the autocracy of Donald Trump. You notice this hit a, this hit a chord because you may have heard in his statements, uh, recently that Donald Trump is saying, you know, he was being asked about the, uh, what revenge and retribution will come to pass if and or when he's elected president again. And I think he's savvy enough to know this is not necessarily an argument that he wants to stick with. This is not necessarily a winning argument going forward because he said to a recent interview, oh, well, you know, I'm, you know, the revenge retribution, which he talks about all the time. Uh, he's going to weaponize the DOJ and he is going to go after his enemies. But now he's saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be too busy. I'm 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 not going to have time for to for petty revenge. No, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to have time to to do that. And um, I think we're going to be hearing more along those lines from him, because I think he thinks it's um, it's a weakness of his and that if Biden frames this as. Democracy versus some kind of Putin, Viktor Orban kind of strongman dictator regime. Mm, I think I think that that's going to be a problem for Mr. Trump. And I think he is savvy enough to smell that, to know that, to, to see that potentially playing out. Recently, um, Congressman Adam Schiff joined uh, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, and he talked with her about making the argument against Trump's threat to democracy and doing it in a way that is clear 
and understandable in a way that is very concrete. Listen to this. What would it mean to our economy uh, to move away from democracy and become something less, some kind of autocratic form of government? It would be a disaster for us economically. It would be disastrous for us on the world stage. It would be a disaster for our allies like those in Ukraine fighting the Russian dictator. It would be a disaster for our freedoms. We've lost some of the freedoms with, with a conservative reactionary court. We'll lose more the more we move towards autocracy. I also think one of the sharpest contrasts between Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, goes beyond economic issues, goes beyond even democracy issues, and it's one of just basic decency. Mm. I think the Biden administration is betting, and I, I think it's a good bet. The American people want their president to be a decent human being. Uh, And you couldn't have a sharper contrast between someone like Joe Biden, who is a good person, uh, who is empathetic towards the struggles of the American people, who is working to address the needs of the American people and bring down the cost of housing and the cost of energy and make sure they have access to quality health care because he cares about what happens to them. And a Donald Trump who wills a depression on the country because it helps him politically or uh, strips the country of the resources it might use to help people with tax cuts for the rich and brags about it to his wealthy supporters. Uh, who cares about nothing but himself? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a very sharp contrast. And, and I think the American people are good and decent and aren't going to want to be uh, in the hands of an autocrat who doesn't believe in our democracy. Adam Kinzinger, in one of his recent Substack posts, <clears throat> posted a video and he talked about this, too. And he actually has a strategy for how to go after Trump and really get under his skin. And he said it's very it's very straightforward. The one thing that apparently is most important to Donald Trump is being perceived as a winner. He's a winner. And so what do you do? You tell him he's a loser. Um, you portray him as somebody who does uh, nothing but whine and complain, whine, 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 complain, complain, complain. Because as we've talked about, you know, Donald Trump's campaign, Donald Trump's followers sometimes say that they follow him because he hates the same things they hate. He is um, a politician who specializes in grievance He's always the victim. And Adam Kinzinger said, you know, I think that the White House, Joe Biden and all the people who are trying to put his campaign uh, in a better light and build it up and move it forward, they should stay on message all the time. Donald Trump is a loser. Donald Trump is a complainer. Donald Trump is a whiner. Adam Kinzinger also added that Donald Trump smells bad because he said, he said, honest to God, the guy smells bad. If you've ever been near him, he smells. But I think that might be a bridge too far. Adam Kinzinger also uh, talked about democracy. He also sees this election the way apparently uh, Joe Biden does, that it is um, a referendum on our form of government. And he thinks that people really need to pay attention to that. Listen to Adam Kinzinger. This is a moment where we again have to double down. We've got to take these things that divide us, 
you know, my wife and I don't agree on a ton of things, right? You're not going to agree with everybody in this movement. Um, but we've got to put all that aside to say our single focus is protecting our democracy. And I'm actually pretty excited about that this year. Like, I, I wish we didn't have to face this challenge, but I think it's going to be a, a pretty big and substantial victory if we do this right. If we assume the polls are wrong and we assume there's going to be a repeat of 2020, that's not going to be it. But if we go to war with MAGA and call them out and make sure the middle doesn't even entertain the idea of voting for Trump because of the economy or because they're sick of Joe Biden, you can be as sick of Joe Biden as you want to be. Joe Biden will not destroy this country. Joe Biden believes in democracy. And that is the only thing on the ballot. That's it. It's democracy. Adam Kinzinger, a lifelong Republican, has admitted that he voted for Biden in 2020. And he has said repeatedly that if this contest comes down once again to Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, he is going to vote for Joe Biden again. He said, I'm not a Democrat. I have lots of disagreements with Democrats, but this isn't about policy decisions or directions. This is about whether or not our country will survive. A little bit of uh, breaking news today that I want to share with you. You know, we talked about how Hunter Biden showed up in Washington to sit before the committee that wants to vote to hold him in contempt of Congress because he won't sit before them. Did you catch that? He sat before the committee that is voting to hold him in contempt of Congress because he won't come and sit in front of them. Okay? All righty. Well, I'm glad you're following that because it seems a little convoluted to me. Anyway, as soon as he left Washington, he flew to California uh, because he faces tax charges, federal tax charges there. And uh, today he did appear in a Los Angeles courtroom and he pled not guilty to nine tax charges. Um, federal prosecutors are saying that he moved to L.A. in 2018, but he didn't pay um, over a million dollars in federal taxes from 2016 through 2019. Um, so they're saying that his off his tax returns were false and he was evading taxes today. The judge in the case, um, Mark Scarcy, I think his name is set a tentative trial date of June 20th. So um, we will see how this plays out. But um, Hunter Biden showed up in an L.A. courtroom and he pled not guilty to what I believe ended up being a huge, like 56-page indictment here. Um, by the way, this is in addition to the three-count federal indictment that he pled not guilty to last October. You gotta, you gotta keep all this straight. The one in, uh, the one in Delaware, the one that was filed in October, doesn't, in most legal analysts' opinion, doesn't hold much water. Hunter Biden was a known drug addict. He tried to buy a gun. Um, 
it was most of the legal analysts that looked at that case said if it had been anybody other than Hunter Biden, they never, ever would have brought charges. It was a gun he had for a matter of days. He was admittedly under the influence when he did this. It was a as the lawyer said on cable TV, if this were anybody other than Hunter Biden, this is such a stupid thing. It would go away. So the October thing, I'm not putting too much um, stock in. We will find out more as uh, the tax evasion case comes to light, whether or not this is a um, a prosecution that is being brought not to tick off Republicans in their continuing battle to make the foibles of Hunter Biden somehow a weakness for his father. We'll see. Um, you know, if it goes to trial June 20th, we will have a decision before the election and we can see whether or not uh, people decide to pay attention to this. But, you know, even if Hunter Biden is found guilty, even if Hunter Biden is sentenced to jail, as those of us who've had children who've become adults know, you know what? At a certain point, you just kind of let them got to do themselves. You know, you do you. And you're here, you try to love them, you try to support them, you try to always be there for them, but it doesn't mean that you control their actions. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks Radio Program, Mega Worldwide. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. WCPT 820. I'm joined by Marjorie Hershey, professor of political science at Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, she's the author of the book Party Politics in America, uh, which is in many circles considered the gold standard of political party texts. Marjorie, thanks for coming back. You're most welcome. OK, um, I have to ask you. Uh, about the Republican primary debate that took place last night. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, two people who have absolutely no chance of getting the nomination unless Trump (laughs) drops dead. Um, Why wouldn't the Republican Party just pull the plug on these? What's the point? Why? Why, Marjorie? Why? (laughs) Well, you're absolutely right that um, it really doesn't make an awful lot of sense for the rest of us to pay attention to the Republican infighting at this point, because Trump is the overwhelmingly likely nominee for the Republican Party for president. On the other hand, um, the Republican Party and the Democrats have certain rules with respect to competition in primaries. And one of those is that you can't, uh, as a fiat from the National Party, stop the process of nomination while it's ongoing. So um, the Republican Party's rules require it to continue to hold primaries and caucuses, as they will. But the outcome of them really isn't going to be very interesting. 
Well, not very interesting and and pointless. I'm sorry. Is that harsh? No, it's perfectly accurate. Um, the only thing that may make a difference is that, uh, of course, um, there is no chance of any Republican beating Trump in Iowa, although since um, media organizations obviously aren't media organizations without an audience, they have to look for a conflict wherever it is that they find it. And so there will be discussion on Monday night or Tuesday about the extent to which Trump's dominance of the Iowa caucuses was greater or less than some pundits think it ought to have been. Um, the only real challenge to Trump, and it's a very minimal challenge, is in the New Hampshire primary a week later. And that's where Nikki Haley uh, has a chance of running a strong second to Trump. I don't think there's a real chance that she could ever actually win. And as soon as New Hampshire is over, um, Haley's chance of winning the nomination disappears. But uh, New Hampshire, you know that states run primaries and caucuses according to their own rules. New Hampshire uses a different rule from Iowa and from many other states in that it's not just Republicans who can vote in the Republican primary. It's an open primary, which means that those who call themselves independents, and they can call themselves independents for that particular day, even though they were Democrats the day before and will be Democrats the day after, can still vote in the Republican primary. So the chances are excellent that a good chunk of Haley's support in New Hampshire will be for, from among those uh, one-day independents who, in fact, will not be voting Republican in the fall. And I'm sure that Trump will point that out and others of his supporters will point that out. But uh, it's, it's Haley's one chance of registering on the national scene. Okay. Do you think... You know, traditionally, you would think that maybe somebody who um, hits the number two spot would have a shot at being a vice president. But I don't see that happening since Donald Trump has made it clear that loyalty is what he's looking for. He's not looking to balance the ticket. He's not looking for anybody who brings a, a block of voters. He's just looking to somebody who is slavishly loyal. So... Again, I'm circling back to my only observation is, is Nikki Haley doing this so that she will have greater name recognition in 2028? I think that's a, a very uh, distinct possibility. She certainly is not likely to be his choice for vice president. I'm sure that Mr. Trump has a number of uh conservative women Republicans who he's got on a list. But um, normally a candidate will try to balance the ticket so as to broaden his or her support, both within the party and outside of the party. Trump has never felt that need. Um, first of all, he uh, apparently doesn't believe that anybody in their right mind wouldn't support him anyway. And second, it's certainly been clear over time that um, the, the support for Mr. Trump in the Republican Party comes as close to religious or cult support mm -hmm. as any I've ever seen. 
there have been some very interesting interviews in which um, there was one report of a focus group among likely Republican voters in Iowa. And uh, one of the, the purposes of the focus group was to test various objections to Trump to see how well they registered and to see how the Trump campaign ought to respond to them. And one of those was, well, he didn't build the border wall as he promised, so he doesn't keep his promises. And one woman in the focus group, and of course we shouldn't put too much attention on one woman in a focus group, but I thought it was very characteristic, said, oh, actually, that's what he meant. He meant not to actually finish the border wall, because if he started it and didn't finish it, then that would force uh, illegal immigrants to compress themselves into a smaller space, and it would be easier to round them up. You know, that's not a rational response, And it indicates that there are an awful lot of people whose support for Mr. Trump is simply unwavering. It has nothing to do with uh, factual information. It has nothing to do with anything other than a deep conviction that he represents them. Um, So he doesn't really feel the need to broaden his support. Ah. And. And given the fervency of that support, um, he doesn't have to worry so much about turnout either, which is obviously a very uh, big quality in a presidential campaign in which the voters are almost evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. Interesting. Interesting. Is it necessary for Donald Trump to campaign in Iowa, to campaign in New New Hampshire, or is it is it like like with the debates? He didn't show up for any of the debates because he really had nothing to gain and he had everything to lose. Um, what about with Iowa and New Hampshire? You know, everybody's talking about, you know, Nikki Haley. Ooh, she's I think it's New Hampshire. She's, you know, she's more and more popular. Uh, so many people, even in Iowa, they love her. Does he have to show up now, do you think? No, in fact, um, I wonder if even if he were no longer with us um, by the time of the rest of the nomination race, whether he still wouldn't win the nomination race. I mean, I think he's going to be um, a candidate for sainthood in the Republican Party for quite a distance into the future. Wow. You know, I actually said something along those lines earlier today that I think the only way Nikki Haley in 2024 has any kind of viable shot is if Donald Trump has a major medical event, something that absolutely sidelines him. And I also said that if, let's say, the major medical event happened three or four days before the election, I think his aides and supporters would simply closet him away, make excuses for why he's not on the campaign trail and let the election take place anyway. Well, in fact, voters have elected dead candidates in the past. I mean, that was the case with the governor of Missouri in the past. Um, First of all, it takes a while for people to hear about things. And second, there are some people whose devotion is so profound that it wouldn't really matter to them because they would assume that if they vote for him anyway, that whoever he chooses would turn out to be an adequate substitute for Mm -hmm. them. Interesting. Uh, do you, if you it had raises, to guess, go, oh, go ahead. 
It, it just briefly raises an interesting question about what happens to the ticket if one of the candidates uh, disappears before um, he or she is sworn in as president. And uh, there is actually a lot of law that that has to do with that, that um, if before the two parties' national conventions, uh, one party or the other um, shuffles off this mortal coil, that it's the voters of the party, the state voters, who decide who should replace him or her. But after the convention has nominated a candidate, it's the Republican and Democratic National Committees who would replace that candidate. Um, so the, if, if what you suggest were to actually happen, the Republican National Committee, of course, would be in danger of uh, being accused of fraud for having not replaced a non-existent candidate. Wow. Um, we're going to take a real quick break. I have a lot more questions for uh, Professor Marjorie Hershey. <laughs> uh, she teaches political science at Indiana University, and she is an expert on party politics. Her book is Party Politics in America. We're going to be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez, host of Driving It Home, right here on WCPT. Now that we have an extra hour together, we have more time to cover the important stories of the day, and I always look forward to hearing from you. Let's talk about what's happening to our democracy and what we can do to help each other. I'm so grateful for your support, as well as our sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Car Service, and the Monaco Brewing Company. Patty Vasquez, weeknights 5 to 7 on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joining me is uh, Indiana University professor Marjorie Hershey. She's an expert on uh, party politics. And uh, before we move off of Donald Trump, which I don't know, we may not ever move off of Donald Trump. If you had to (laughs) guess right now, I'm putting you on the spot who or at least what sort of person do you think he is going to pick as his vice president? Well, he's already given an indication that he's going to pick a woman for his vice presidential candidate. And I think that there is a short list that's pretty obvious. Um, one person on it is Carrie Lake, who ran unsuccessfully for the Senate as a Republican in Arizona and has been a staunch supporter of the idea that the election was stolen from Trump. Um, another is uh, Elise Stefanik, who is a House member and is, I think, fourth in line in the House Republican leadership. But it will certainly be a woman who is one of the election deniers because um, Trump has doubled or tripled or, or uh, quintupled down on that election denial over time. 
Interesting. That's uh, that's what I think as well. Somebody wrote an article saying, well, you know, who he picks is going to give us an indication um, whether or not, you know, he's going to destroy government or, or leave it intact. And they specifically said if he picks a toady and they named Carrie Lake, then we'll get the idea that he really does want to be the next Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban um, in this country. But 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 can the scenario we talked about before, something happens to him. Oh, my God. Carrie Lake is president. God save us. I can't even <laughs> I can't even go there. Um, I think that that would be like Sarah Palin as president. You know, I mean, Carrie Lake, I've never even seen her do an interview where her face was in focus. I mean, you know, she always has that slightly out of focus Hollywood glow. And, you know, I mean, the woman can't face us clearly and she's going to lead the country. I, I, I find that just breathtakingly horrific, just beyond comprehension. Well. In fact, um, if the if it turns out that Trump were to die between the time he were named as the nominee and the time that the election takes place, um, it would be the Republican National Committee that names the new nominee. And although there certainly would be a great deal of pressure on the RNC to name the vice presidential nominee as its nominee and uh, presumably also that would be the simplest thing to do that would uh, generate the least possible work on behalf of the RNC. But nevertheless, I think that there's really a disconnect between what Republican Party leaders and elected officials at the national level think of Donald Trump and what Trump's st- strongest supporters at the local level think about Donald Trump. Um, the national Republicans, although Trump certainly does have support among them, has a lot less support than they publicly express. I think most national Republican leaders and national Republican elected officials would like nothing better than for Trump to disappear. Um, They can't do anything about it because of the fact that he has such intense, vibrant support at the grassroots level. And the fact that in Congress, so many of the seats, the Republican seats and the Democratic seats as well, are gerrymandered so that it's the extreme views within the party that are the most likely to get represented. So um, my sense is that if President, if the the former president who were renominated had died before the election, there would be a lot of sentiment within the Republican Party to move away from Trumpism. Somebody who would be the nominee would have to, of course, express fealty to Trump, but not necessarily to his policies, because there are a lot of national Republicans who understand that uh, a lot of Former President Trump's policies are not very popular among many strong supporters of the Republican Party, including the, the business community. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk for a second uh, about Asa Hutchinson. 
Uh, for those of you who don't remember, he he's actually been Repub- running for uh, the Republican nomination for president. You didn't really see him much on the debate stage. Uh, he never really got a lot of traction, but he never really dropped out. And it's so funny. I saw an article this morning. It was like Asa Hutchinson wants you to remember that he's still running. And it was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about him. But apparently he is um, either in Iowa or going to Iowa. Iowa and he's why what is the point what is uh, looking at this from a political point of view a party point of view what would be the reason for Asa not simply to go away and be quiet well I think whenever you're talking about people who consider themselves worthy of running for president there's never a whole lot of shortage of ego involved. Um, these are people who look in the mirror and see a president looking back at them. So um, it doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with their feelings about their likelihood of winning. Um, a lot of it has to do with, quite simply, their belief in themselves and their feeling that they could be a good president. Um, and I think, above all, what keeps at least some Republicans in the race is the fact that we have a 78-year-old Republican leading candidate and that um, at least actuarially, we know that there is a distinct possibility that something could happen to remove him from the race before it is that he were to take office. And by the way, let me just mention with respect to what you had said earlier about people looking to Trump's um, vice presidential choice as an indicator of what he will do in his administration. We don't need to look at any vice presidential choices to know what President Trump is going to do in his administration. He tells us, um, he tells us all the time he will exact retribution for all of the things that he feels have been done wrongly to him over time. Um, He is simply not somebody who is very influenceable. And so uh, there's really no need to spend time thinking about whom he will choose as his vice president. That person probably won't matter very much anyway, as we saw with what happened to Mike Pence. Um, It's just simply Trump will be Trump. Hmm. That's a terrifying prospect, but I agree with you. I think the mistake that people made the first time around is they, um, when he first ran, is they thought a lot of what he was saying was going to, was hyperbole, just designed to get people, um, emotional at his rallies. And then it turned out that he actually meant everything he said. And you're right. He has talked about weaponizing the DOJ and using it as his personal, um, law force for revenge and retribution. And I thought it was really interesting. For the first time ever, earlier today, I think it, I don't know if it was when he came out to talk to the reporters uh, in New York or whether it was just another interview he did recently. For the first time ever, somebody asked him about that. And he said, oh, well, you know, when I'm president, I'll be too busy. I won't have time for revenge. And I thought to myself, 
That is so untrump like to say when you're you're actually you're so right. He has been saying nothing but about about how he's going to clear out the civil servants and everybody's going to pass a loyalty test. And any lawyer that doesn't support every idea he has at the DOJ is going to be shown the door and they're going to go after his enemies. Why all of a sudden do you think it, it he changed at least for one interview recently? He changed tack. Well, trying to advise Mr. Trump is an interesting and and rather difficult proposition. The people around him know that he rarely listens to anything that anybody else says, and that when he says something outrageous, which he does all the time, and it's part of the reason why he gets the incredibly large amount of media coverage that he does, it's really rather remarkable that all the way through Biden's presidency, he's gotten less media coverage than his former opponent did. I don't think we've ever seen that before in American politics. But every so often, somebody in Trump's inner circle comes to him and says, look, um, what you're saying is starting to get a pushback on such and such a point, And you really need to say the opposite the next time you appear. And uh, typically he'll do that once or twice and then go back to what it is he's saying. He's made his admiration for Viktor Orban and for Vladimir Putin very clear. Um, He behaved that way in office when he was the first time. So um, I don't think that his trajectory has changed. But um, Mr. Trump will say whatever it is that gets him media attention and whatever he thinks the people who he's talking to at the time will want to hear. I'm talking to Professor Marjorie Hershey. Uh, She teaches political science at Indiana University at Bloomington, and uh, she's an expert in party politics. We have more questions for her. We'll get to them right after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by political science professor Marjorie Hershey. She's with Indiana University in Bloomington. She wrote a book called Party Politics in America. Now, Marjorie, I know you wrote your book, let's see, 2015. That's what, like eight, nine years ago. Um, Do you think party politics has changed since that book came out? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. And um, the book keeps getting reissued under um, new editions. So most recently, it was put out in 2021, and it will be again in 2025. Um, I think party politics has steadily become more polarized. That's just an obvious thing to say. But it's something that we saw rooted in changes that began in the 1960s and the 1970s, an increasing separation of the two parties. It used to be in the mid-1900s that there was considerable overlap between Republicans and Democrats on a number of issues. That overlap came in large part because the Democrats included lots of Southern whites who were very conservative but had been traditionally Democratic, almost genetically Democratic. 
After the National Democratic Party started to change in the direction of supporting civil rights for black Americans, that slowly, over time, loosened Southern whites' loyalty to the National Democrats, and they became from predominantly Democratic to now predominantly Republican. That change was, by and large, complete by about the mid-1990s. And as a result, the Republican Party is a much more consistently conservative party than it was previously. And the Democratic Party is a somewhat more consistently liberal party, having lost its southern wing. So I think that's a major change. And with that has come the phenomenon that as the differences between the two parties have become clearer, and as the nature of the issues has somewhat changed, in the mid-1900s, most of the issues were either economic or about foreign policy. Now, increasingly, because of the greater and greater influence of evangelical Christians within the Republican Party, issues have changed to more culture wars-based issues that have increased the emotionality of a lot of people's ties to their political party to the point where a lot, a large proportion of Democrats and Republicans see the other party and its supporters as literally dangerous to the country. And that has increased the amount of hostility in politics um, ever since, particularly the, the years of the Trump administration, there's been an increase in political violence, especially from the right wing. And that has a lot of effects on American politics. For one thing, it reduces the willingness of a lot of very capable people to consider running for office. Um, why should they put themselves and their family in harm's way in an environment where political violence has become more common? So it has both direct and indirect influences on the nature of the people who run for public office, the types of issues that are discussed, and um, the ability of some groups to be able to get what they want from politics while simply waiving emotional issues in front of the electorate. I was just thinking about what you said about how we've come to view the other side as not just different, but dangerous. But when you've got somebody like Donald Trump, I mean, I do. I think he's dangerous. Well, I think uh, a lot of Democrats agree with you, and there are a lot of Republicans who feel that Democrats are dangerous. Um, the notion that liberals in the United States are socialists and people who want to take wealth away from those who have it and give it to people who don't um, has a very long tradition in American politics. We saw that even during the Civil War and Reconstruction when um, there were a lot of Republicans who said the, the Democrats and blacks in particular um, have a socialist streak and that if we uh, submit to civil rights policies, that these socialists will take control and that they will completely upend the economic system in the United States. Um, that obviously has not, has not um, proven to be true, but 
the fact that things aren't proven to be true doesn't stop them from being repeated. Really? Um, I was... I was talking to somebody about misinformation and disinformation, and you said it doesn't, the fact that something's not true doesn't keep it from being repeated. Uh, these days, it almost seems to me like it increases the odds that it will be repeated, because generally speaking, the stuff that's not true is, forgive me, but juicier than the stuff mm-hmm. that is that is true. Um I don't know what we do about that. Well, what the founders of the country would say we do about that, although I can imagine that they would be totally dumbstruck by the thought of um, the, the Internet and social networking and the level of um misstatements, uh, well, lies um, that are being passed off as truth in American politics now, what they would say is the only cure for misinformation is more information, that that's why freedom of speech is so vital. The challenge that we face, of course, is that As you say, misinformation is often dressed up in fancier and more enticing clothes than the truth is. Um, The truth often tends not to hold up nearly as well in terms of generating an audience. And uh, what we do about that is extremely difficult because any time we crack down on misinformation, some people will say you're cracking down on truth and that, therefore, you're limiting freedom of speech. Uh, about all we can hope for, and I think about all that James Madison among the founders would, would wish for us, is just keep talking about the truth. Keep talking about facts. Um, say it as often as you can, and hope that, as so often happens, the folks on the other side who are spreading misinformation will go so far that they will go beyond the pale and that people will say, um, wait a minute, um, you mean we ought to overthrow a democratic system because it's being rigged? Well, what happens if we do that and I'm not the one who wins? Um, <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't do uh, bode very well for me. Um, And it does seem to happen over time that uh, particular movements against tend to go farther and farther in their direction to the point where they turn people off themselves. Would you say that's kind of scary with, you know, the Republicans people. I heard people a lot of people say that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, that the Republicans were going to be like the dog who always barked at the cars driving by and one day actually (laughs) got his teeth hooked into a tire and didn't turn out so well for the for the dog in that case. Has the Republican Party. I mean, I now hear Republicans saying things like, well, you know, we ought to think no rethink no fault divorce. And, you know, do we really want um, women to have access to birth control because wasn't, you know, giving them their freedom kind of a, the beginning of a lot of the stuff we didn't like. I mean, how I don't understand how they could be any worse than they are right now. Well, uh, we've seen a lot of that, and we've seen it particularly with regard to the abortion issue. There was a case just uh, yesterday, I believe, of a woman in Ohio 
who miscarried and who was prosecuted for um, mishandling a corpse in the midst of all of the pain and anguish that comes with a miscarriage, um, that these kinds of things are happening now. And you might ask, so at what point does it end? Um, I think a lot of people have asked that about Mr. Trump's appeal over time. There were a lot of folks who said when he criticized John McCain and said, uh, I like people who weren't captured, that that would be the end of his appeal. Well, that was in 2015, you know, and it's uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since that time, and he hasn't suffered from it. Um, I think that we have to go pretty far in the extreme direction before the folks who are closer to the middle say, whoa, what did you just say? Um, hold it. You know, th- this is not exactly where I thought I was going to be. So I think we probably have further to go, as unpleasant as that sounds. How? How could they? <laughs> how could it be worse? What what rights? I mean, do you think like are you talking about like repeal of gay marriage, making um, in vitro fertilization illegal, like actually passing some of the things that they're threatening to pass? Is that what you're talking about? Oh yeah, at least um, you know. I think that we've really had a lot of change in a relatively short time. When we look back just even half a century ago to the 1950s and we compare what was regarded as socially acceptable at that time compared to now, we've had a lot of change in attitudes toward LGBTQ rights. We've had a lot of change in attitudes toward civil rights. We've come a long way in in terms of greater um, acceptance of principles of equality and egalitarianism. And that doesn't come without a price. Um, there are a lot of people who along the way may have kept quiet because they felt that they were sort of going against the trend. But it's not that they felt any differently about homosexuality or about race or about other things than they did before. They just quieted down about it a bit more because they felt that their views weren't as welcome as they used to be. But they're still there. And uh, when you make quick movement in one direction, there's usually a counter movement at some point. And we are in the middle of it. It's interesting that you say that because I was um, listening to an interview given by one of the um, was a a leader of a national gay organization. And that person and this was quite a while ago said we made so much progress so quickly that I was very seriously worried there would be a backlash. And now here it is. Yeah. Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. We tend not to remember the past um, in a in a very real up to the moment way. We tend to assume that what's happening now has been the case for a while, and it hasn't. Um, the abortion issue, you know, fifty years in a change from virtually no legal abortion to relatively open legal abortion, that's a 
pretty quick change of such a dramatic subject and one that comes so close to the personal lives of so many people. And uh, it's, it's not really surprising that we're going to have that kind of reaction that says, we're going too fast. Hold on. Um, we're taking a giant step in the wrong direction, and I don't like it. Um, humans adapt, but we adapt pretty slowly over time. And uh, we're having a hard time adapting now to the kinds of changes in demography, in um, people's um, beliefs that they can do whatever they feel is right, even if other people don't think it's right. It's going to be it's going to be a challenging time. We're in the middle of a very anxious period of American life, and anxiety tends to bring out various kinds of resentment, racial resentment, um, resentment with respect to gender, and we're going to have to survive that um, mm-hmm. and get past it. All right. I think we need to take a break. I'm talking to Professor Marjorie Hirsch from Indiana <laughs> University. I need to collect myself. We'll continue right after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are talking party politics with Professor Marjorie Hershey from Indiana University. She literally wrote the book on it. Um, one of the things before I let you go that I want to make sure we talk about is um, the upcoming 2024 elections and members of Congress. What do you see there? Well, um, the biggest thing I see is that gerrymandering is alive and well throughout Mm. the country. Um, The chances are that about 95% of members of the U.S. House will be reelected, and that's because they're running in districts that are not competitive, but rather districts that were drawn to generate success for their party. Um, That happens because we draw congressional district lines Largely in the state legislatures, only about seven states use an independent commission to draw those lines. When we have independent commissions drawing the lines, we tend to get more competitive districts. When you have a gerrymandered district, one that's drawn to favor one party or the other, that means that the incumbent in that district doesn't have to worry about appealing to the people of the other party because they don't count. They're in the minority in that district by design. So that means that the incumbent has to worry about the party primary. And the types of people who are most likely to turn out to vote in party primaries are those on the extremes. And in the Republican Party, that's people on the right. And in the Democratic Party, that's people on the left. And that brings us back to something that you had said earlier about um, pessimism about the future and the difficulty of imagining how far some of these trends could go. Let me just mention that I think that cynicism and apathy are just sinful as far as 
politics is concerned and party politics in particular. The people who are heard are those who speak out and those who organize and get others to go along with them. Um, When you feel pessimistic to the point where you think, oh, there's no point even getting involved. You know, it's all rigged. There's no way that I can make a difference. That's when the opposition has silenced you. And that is a very good reason to say to yourself, look, uh, all I've got is my voice and I have to use it and I have to be willing to put myself in a position to use it, to use the energy to participate. And that will make a difference. It has over time. What do you think is the most effective way for somebody to use their voice? And I'm guessing you're not talking about showing up somewhere with a megaphone and shouting. <laughs> well, you certainly don't need to these days with social media. You can shout from the from from the convenience of your own home. Um, I think that person to person organizing has been found to be the most effective way to make change. There have been a lot of studies in campaign organizations of when you try to reach people by email, when you try to reach them by telephone, when you try to reach them by postal mail, what makes the biggest difference, what generates the biggest turnout and the most positive turnout. And the answer almost always is face-to-face communication. That's very costly. It takes a lot of time. Uh, It's risky. You might end up talking to somebody who slams the door in your nose, and um, it's a scary prospect for many people to talk with people who disagree with them or to talk with people at all. Um, Public speaking of any kind, even person-to-person, is often very scary for many people. But that kind of personal organizing, going to people who probably agree with you but maybe need a little bit more information to bolster their views, Um, going door-to-door before a political campaign and trying to talk with people on an individual basis, that's made a difference, for example, in referenda having to do with homosexuality. People who have gone door-to-door to talk with people about gay rights Um, have often been the only person who talked to that householder um, expressing a view different from their own. Most of the time it may make no difference, um, but most competitive elections are won by a very, very small margin. And as a result, even convincing a few people to go out to vote um, or to consider an alternative that they hadn't considered before can make a difference. Yeah. Um, I've heard uh, candidates say, talk about that personal touch. And Lauren Underwood, a congresswoman from Illinois, um, she went up against an incumbent and, you know, basically knocked on every door in the district three times. They did like three circuits of the of the thing. And that kind of they uh, when I was talking to people who were evaluating her first run for Congress, they attributed it to that. And it was not a landslide win by any stretch of the imagination, but it was that kind of contact that, you know, here's who I am. Here's my background. Here's what I believe. 
um, really, really makes a difference. And candidates have told me, I know we don't have a lot of time, but candidates have told me, because um, I've said to them, well, when you were going door to door, what was your most effective message? And they said, no, I was most effective door to door when I wasn't there to tell them, but when I was there to listen. What are your concerns? Yeah. What's not getting done that you think needs to get done? What are you worried about? They said that's when they really broke through. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely correct. And um, I think that that kind of personal contact certainly makes more of a difference in local races and in smaller constituencies than it does on the national level. But what's really going to make the difference in this fall's election is going to be the level of turnout of the two sides. Um, If President Biden is uh, reasonably well-liked by a number of Democrats, but fewer of them go to the polls, he's going to lose. Um, One of the things that Mr. Trump has done in Iowa this year is to generate a turnout-the-vote organization, which he hadn't done in 2015, and he did not do all that well in the Iowa caucuses in 2015. So he is certainly attuned to the need for encouraging voter turnout, and that's something that the Democrats will have to pay very close attention to as well. Yeah. Uh, Professor Hershey, thank you so much for being here today. It is always a pleasure to talk politics with you. Marjorie Hershey is a professor of political science at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her currently recently revised book is Party Politics in America. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. You are most welcome. It was a pleasure. That is going to do it for us today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow. Remember, it's Friday, so um, I'm going to expect you to call in and talk about uh, the news stories of the day and the week that made the biggest impression on you. Hopefully, I'll be able to share some interesting sound clips that I didn't get to this week. So I will see you tomorrow starting at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening and good night. Good night.